Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new episode of Geekscape. I'm Jonathan London. You can follow me on Twitter at Jonathan London. And of course, you can find Geekscape on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter. Just search for Geekscape. We're on there. A lot of you guys send me emails asking about film school. Some of you guys are in film school. Some of you guys are thinking about film school. I, of course, went to film school, and, uh, and now I teach film school, really. Like, I, t I teach MFA students at, at New York Film Academy here in L.A., I guess. So um, it's really, what it comes down to for me is, is storytelling. Was I in a place in my life where I could just go out and just start making films or start writing scripts uh, at a competitive level? No. So film school for me was a great place where I could really get a ton of opinions, become a sponge for a couple of years, and start to kind of find my voice. I mean, you guys, anybody working in their field are going to go through, what, 10 years of just junk and putting out some of the worst stuff uh, possible while they find their voice, while they find their tool set, while they find their collaborators. And film school really is a great place to do that. Half of the people I collaborate with today I met in film school. And so it's really up to you guys. Of course, I'll always take your emails at jonathan at geekscape.net if you guys want to talk about it, want to talk about filmmaking or any of that. But my guest for this episode actually might give you guys a better perspective. Um, he had some more bumps than we did on our, on, our, uh, on our quest to becoming storytellers. But he's going to tell you guys all about it. This is Geekscape, and um, here's the episode. My guest this week is Jamal Joseph. Uh, he is an author who has a brand new book out, and you guys should all look it up on like Amazon. You should look it up on. Uh, you guys have it digitally. Uh, yes, available digitally in BarnesandNobles.com and Amazon. All right. In the mo the book is called Panther Baby: A Life of Rebellion and Reinvention. And Jamal was actually one of my film school teachers at Columbia, and he's still there. Are you uh, are you the head of the department still, or are you, what's your story? Uh, yes, I'm just I hanging around. What are you doing? I'm hanging around. I'm still there. <laughs> I served as chair of the uh, of the program for five years. Uh -huh. uh, this semester I'm on sabbatical, so I'm no longer chair. Ira Deutschman is the chair now. Okay. And um, but I'm a full professor. I teach screenwriting, and um, and I've been on faculty for fourteen years. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to people thinking about film school? Like honestly, we 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 do get geekscapists who say like, should I go to film school? This and that, and I do think it's a specific to your case situation, right? What would yeah. you tell somebody? What were the advantages? You know, the the thing is, is that with digital technology, um, 
screenwriting software is available to everybody. Cameras are, avail are available to everybody. But in the same way that um, you have some wonderful musicians who are self-taught, but there are people who know that they can grow if they apprentice, if they play with good musicians, and if they go to a conservatory. And the argument could be, why go to film school? I could just take the money and, you know, why, why go to music school or conservatory? I can just take the money and, um, you know, rent Carnegie Hall and play. Mm -hmm. But are you really uh, exploring the death of your art? Have you explored the history, the craft? Have you really been mentored so that you have developed that talent? And I think that film school can be helpful to people who really want to investigate storytelling. Um, there's a craft of screenwriting, there's a craft of directors, more than just pointing the camera, it's more than just imitating shots from, from films that you love, and it's more than just writing your version, mm -hmm. you know, of scripts that you love. Um, and there's also the community of filmmakers right. that come in these film programs, um, you know, whether it's a place like Columbia, or New York Film Academy, NYU, USC, um, a lot of places have great programs, there might be film collectors, there's the camaraderie of filmmaking, and it is something that you get better at the more you do mm -hmm. if you're approaching it kind of from you know from a sense of craft yeah you just don't let the stuff that gets you down keep you down does that make sense because like i remember I, I i got into a fit of depression when i left columbia I'll, I'll be honest i made that short everybody liked the short but then it was like then what like i started to get music video work i started to get commercial work but i think what i missed was you guys i i missed sitting in eric mendelson's class i sit i, I missed sitting in jerry cass's class I missed it in you guys' class, having someone to kind of guide me. I, I didn't have anybody in Hollywood who took me under their wing and helped me find jobs, helped me find any of that stuff. And when you're hustling for the next month's rent, like it, it can really be disconcerting, and you can find yourself kind of alone in a, in a collaborative medium. It's enough to shut you down. Yeah, it is. It's the journey of the artist, you know, mm -hmm. because you're, um, you're struggling with that creative spark anyway, right? Right. Is this a good idea? Is this a funny idea? Is this a meaningful idea? Um, and, you know, how do you give birth to that? How do you shape it? That's hard enough just in mm -hmm. terms of digging down deep uh, to make art. And then to be in a situation where you're not in a safe space and it's competitive and there are bills to pay um, is tough. But don't give up. And that, <laughs> might, that might sound cliche, but it's, it's really, really true. Right. Um, I have friends who have had um, really solid careers who go through their ups and downs, mm -hmm. um, who've had uh, uh, films that have done uh, pretty well and wonder why this idea that, the next idea that's pretty important to them um, didn't catch. Didn't catch, or they couldn't get it made. Right. Um, but one thing is for sure is that, is that if you give up, it will never get made. But if you don't give up, there's a chance that it will. Um, um, Okay, I'm going back to film school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a safe... Whoa, you're like... <laughs> I'll fix it, Jamal. There we go. There's a safe space aspect yeah. of it, too, Perfect. that's really important. Yeah, not having uh, to worry about the rent, community. not having to worry but, but, about, like, like Peter getting rejection from a, from a client. But there's a great studio. Peter, uh, Peter Farrelly of the, of the Farrelly Brothers came and was a, was a speaker at, at commencement at Columbia a few years back. And he didn't go to film school. He actually was in the... English Writing program. program. He yeah. was in the writing program. And... He said a great thing. He said, you know, um, when I came to L.A., uh, he said, I came with a group of people. And people who put a time limit on it, he says, those people says, I'm giving myself a year. And the year passed, and they went home, or they wanted to do other things. Three years, five years. He said, you know, everybody who didn't hit it by that time limit kind of left. But those people who waited it out 
And he said, for him, it took 10 years. Yeah, he and those his people that, Those people that really didn't put a timeline on it, but just knew that they were doing this thing because they had to do it. Mm -hmm. And did other things. Unashamedly did other things to kind of pay the bills and yeah. do, what, uh, do what they were doing. Um, that eventually you will find a way to get that piece made and to make your art and to arrive. I really do believe that. I believe that keeping a positive thought and holding fast to your dream is very, very important. Where did you develop that mindset? Well, I actually developed that mindset in prison. Talk, talk, <laughs> which talk about an awkward which, journey to being which, a filmmaker. Which really brings what, what brought Jamal out here to Los Angeles. Jamal's out here doing a reading and a promotion for this book, Panther Baby, which literally came out this week, guys. So if you're listening to this, this week uh, the book is new, and it does chronicle Jamal, then known as Eddie. You're, you're, that, was your, that was the name you were born with? Or? I was born with the name Eddie and um, took the name Jamal. Uh, when I was 15 years old. What's that all about? Just before I joined the Panther Party. Well, it was about up? Black Where Pride. I grew, up, I grew up between the Bronx and Harlem, so this okay. is in New York City. What and year? 1967, 68. Okay. I joined the Panthers in 68. And we had come out of the Civil Rights Movement, and there was the Black Pride and Black Power Movement. So people were taking African names to show pride and to show their connection. And there's a funny story because... Um, I was on my way to the Panther office. Well, Dr. King, I had uh, been in the NAACP Youth Council at my church and um, was a big admirer of Dr. King. My adopted grandparents had been in the NAACP. They, in fact, when they took me in, were quite old and were born uh, in the 1800s. Their older what? brother, their older wow. siblings, and their parents had been slaves. So I heard stories first-hand stories of a segregated South where people were lynched, of the Ku Klux Klan, things that they had witnessed, people in their families who had been lynched. A South where when you came down the street, you stepped off the sidewalk if a white person was coming. You didn't look them in the eye, and you right. stepped off the sidewalk. If it was raining, your shoes got muddy. And you're a 15-year-old kid hearing these stories. Well, I, I was hearing these stories all yeah. from, from, from when I was little. Mm -hmm. um, and then my, my grandfather died, and so it was just my adopted grandmother and I. And um, I was an honest student, I was in the choir, but I had this sense of the world and a sense of social justice for them. Dr. King got killed, I got really mad. And I went down to 125th Street, kind of snuck down there, and they were rioting, and I found myself on the fringes of the riot and threw a couple of bricks and bottles. Cops chased me, they shot at me. They shot at you. And I came to school the next day, mad as hell, mm -hmm. and I announced to my friends that I was gonna be a black militant because the, there were the militants that were on TV. There was Stokely Carmichael, who coined the phrase Black Power, and there was H. Rap Brown. And um, one of my friends, I was a, a hall monitor, so we all kind of sat together and edit early so we could go, you know. That's crazy. I mean, the valedictorian getting mixed up in this. Yeah, but my, one of my friends is, uh, and I announced this to my friends, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a black militant. Right. And one of my good friends was Paul Kirshner, a Jewish kid, and he said, Eddie, I don't know if you can announce you're going to be a black militant like it's a career choice. <laughs> like you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. I was like, no, Paul, you watch. So I oh, you keep doing that. I keep, I keep doing that. I'll keep doing it. Uh, I'll keep fixing the door. So I Let's now... see if I can get you a little I, bit more real estate. I now um, had to prove to Paul that I was going to be a militant, as much to my own you know, desire to do it. And the Panthers, there was a news report where the Panthers uh, stormed the state capital of Sacramento with guns. Okay to protest the change in the gun control laws. Because the Black Panther Party started in Oakland in response to police brutality and legally carried guns in law books. And you're this kid in New York looking for just something to attach to so you can 
you can you can put a place to this feeling. Exactly right. And I saw the Panthers come on TV and the reporters that and Ronald Reagan was actually there that day. He was the governor and the Panthers marched right by him into the state capitol to protest that they had a constitutional right to bear arms, that the Ku Klux Klan, the police, a lot of people that were killing black folks had guns, so black folks had the right to have guns to defend themselves. This made national news. And the guy said, the ultra-militant Black Panther Party. He said, and the Panther car was pulled over and rifles and guns were found. And it was communist literature in the trunk. And I'm looking at my grandmother's TV going, like, they're crazy. Look at them. Right. They got leather coats. They got guns. They got communist literature. I want to join that one. <laughs> hey, did you go announce that? Just on that. I rode out to Brooklyn. There wasn't even a Panther office in Harlem at that time or, 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 or the Bronx. And we take this long train ride out to Brooklyn. And I'm with two older guys. And you and two older guys? Yeah, okay. and, and uh, we're riding, and uh, we're starting to psych each other out because we don't really know what the Panthers are about. Right, and there's danger. As far as we know. I One mean, guy says, hey, man, uh, you know, yeah. the Panthers, are you sure you can do this? Right. You know, the Panthers are like the mafia. Once you get in, there's no getting out. I'm this skinny 15-year-old kid. I can't be a punk in front of my boys. I go, I don't care. One guy says, you've got to kill a white dude. You know that. And he inside, I'm like, I gotta kill somebody, but I have to be tough in my boys. I don't and they, care. And they said that. Yeah. You gotta kill a white person. Yeah, they didn't know. They weren't Panthers. Right. This is conjecture. Okay, okay. Another guy said, No, man, you don't have to kill a white dude. You gotta kill a white cop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. And, and you, you have still, to bring in his badge and his gun. <laughs> and you didn't get I don't like, I don't, I, you I don't care. In it. Walked into the Panther office, scared to death. All these cool. Members of the Panthers, these brothers and sisters with their leather coats and their army fatigue jackets and the berets. And, and I sit down in the back, and the, um, the person who was running the meeting is explaining the Panther 10-point program, uh, which if you go online, um, it was written in 66. It's like it could have been written last year. Right. Uh, and uh, it says, uh, point number one, we want freedom. We want the power to determine the destiny of our community. We want full employment for our people. We want decent housing fit for shelter for human beings. We want an end to police brutality. We want an education that teaches us our true history. That sounded fun. Nothing in there about killing white folks. <laughs> Were you I'm disappointed? Not, I'm not hearing. Well, no, here's what I did. Because I still, I was listening. I wasn't really listening. I, I'm still on the train with that other conversation. Right. I jump up in the middle of this man explaining, I think, a point number five about education. I was like, choose me. Choose me, brother. Oh, me, I'll kill a white dude right now. Well, the whole said, meeting wait, stops. In you the said minute. that? Yeah, I said that. Whole meeting stops. Guy calls me up front, and I'm standing there, and he reaches down, and he's sitting behind a wooden desk, and he opens the bottom drawer of the desk, and he reaches down, and my heart is pounding in my skinny chest, and I was like, oh, look how far down he's reaching. He's going to give me a big damn gun. And he hands me a stack of books. Hmm. Autobiography of Malcolm X, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, uh, Wretched at Earth by Fanon. So I'm thinking this is a test, right, based okay. upon what my guys thought of. So, uh, so I said, well, excuse me, brother. I thought you were going to arm me. And he said, young brother, I just did. Oh, shit. And as I'm walking back to my seat, he said, let me ask you another wow. question. He says, since you came in here talking about you want to kill white folks, you know. He said, if all of the cops, these racist cops who are out here brutalizing people, he said, if all the people being shot down and beat up were white and the cops were black, he said, these store owners that are ripping off the poor communities with high prices and with spoiled vegetables and rotten meat, if all of them were black, 
and the people being exploited and ripped off were white. He said, and these jive time fascist pig politicians. He said, if all of them were black and the people being exploited and oppressed were white, would that make things correct? And I thought, this time I answered with my brain instead of my now bruised adolescent ego. And I said, no, it seems like it would still be wrong, brother. He said, that's right. He said, this is a class struggle for human rights. Mm -hmm. Not just a race struggle. Right. Study those books so you know what the revolution is about. So one of the biggest misconceptions of the Black Panther Party is that it was a racist organization. And the Panthers actually coined the phrase, all power to the people, and would explain when you came to a Panther meeting or somebody spoke to a rally that that means black power for black people, white power for white people, right. brown power for brown people, yellow power for yellow people. And you go, well, what does that mean? White power. Yeah, white power because there are as many more more poor white people in this country than poor black people. Yeah, you go to Nebraska, you go to, to New Mexico. People who are struggling. To, yeah. So, so we, we, we are talking about the majority of the people. And, you know, the Occupy movements have, uh, have articulated it really well, talking about, you know, the 99%. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's, in those days, uh, the Panthers, Students for a Democratic Society, the Young Lords, um, student groups would all get together and talk about issues, talk about ending the war in Vietnam, talk about police brutality, talk about oppression in the black community, in the Latino community, in Asi Asian community, what was so happening with women. you guys wouldn't just get together and just talk about black issues? No, because it was class struggle. People were, were talking about a system that, that, that exploits and oppresses everyone. So why not just call yourselves the, the Panthers? The idea was that in the black community that you needed a revolutionary vanguard and organization to organize in that community. And so when white people would come, and they were welcome to come to the office, and then they were always open meetings that we call community meetings and political education classes, they were closed meetings for Panther business, for Panthers to do right. it. But we say the best thing that you can do to help the black struggle is not to actually come to Harlem or to come to Oakland, but to go back to your communities and to organize. First of all, there's people in your communities that need it, and there's people in your communities that need it, need it to be sensitized. That's where you can best do the work. So something so peaceful, how did it end up with you in jail? Well, the Panthers were peaceful. Um, the Panthers were very clear about believing that the struggle would come to revolution and probably armed conflict. And you, did you want to be a writer and a screenwriter or a playwright then? No, not at that time. Okay. But the Panthers were very clear on that. So I, 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 I you know, the Panthers talked about self-defense. Um, the police began to attack Panther offices, so the Panthers armed themselves to defend uh, those homes and those offices, especially after Fred Hampton had been killed in his sleep in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Very famous case where they said there was a shootout. They killed Fred Hampton, who was a very charismatic young leader. He was 21 years old. He had been an NAACP field organizer. He was a leader of the Illinois chapter of the Panthers and um, helped institute, you know, the Panthers were famous for its free breakfast program for kids. We, felt we fed thousands of school kids mm -hmm. um, every morning um, in poor communities and did it with no money. You go into a church and you ask them or a community center and you ask them, can you use their kitchen and their dining room? You go to vendors in the community, store owners, and you said, we don't need money, but if you'll give us a case of milk, the person right. across the street has given us pancake mix, and the person down the street has given us some eggs. And, and then you get a combination of Panthers and grandmothers to, and community folk to cook, and there's no shortage of hungry kids. Because what is freedom? You know, um, when we talk about liberation and freedom, well, if you're starving, freedom is a meal. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're homeless and you're freezing at night, liberation is a warm place to sleep. 
So you organize people around their needs, and then we would point out the contradictions in a government that is so very, very rich, but has people starving. So why is that? What, what, you know? But when you talk about redistribution of the wealth, you bring yourself in conflict with the, with the government um, who wants to protect the wealth and wants to protect the state, mm -hmm. and you will be the victim of state violence. Um, and that's what we saw in the repression of the civil rights movement. That's when we saw when Dr. King was killed at a point that he denounced a war in Vietnam as a war of capitalist exploitation and began organizing in the labor movement. When he was in Memphis, he was there organizing black and white sanitation workers. So you start trying to taking on these issues, you will be the victim of state yeah. violence or state sanctions. Cut violence. off the resources at home, and all of a sudden they can't exactly. fight a war. And exactly. The same, the same thing with Malcolm X. You know, right. Malcolm X came back and said, you know, I no longer believe that there has to be a separatist movement and that white people are evil or the devil. I think that people can work together of all colors, white and black, to end the system of capitalist exploitation. Key in that sentence is when you denounce the state and you talk about capitalism. And when the Panther said that, when the Panther said from slavery to now, the oppression of black people have not just been wrong and immoral, but a business. We have to keep it, be clear that slavery was a business. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just because the slave owners hated black folk. You know, right. the first slaves in this country were indentured white people. Yeah. Um, and the they prisoners. ran, but they ran away, right. you know, so, and they could blend in. This is before photographs and DNA. And then Native Americans, and the Native Americans would be like, wait, wait I live here. Yeah. You know, that's not going to happen. We'll fight to the <laughs> death or I'll sit in a corner and starve before I'll be a slave. So the slave, the slave trade it, uh, continued to, to reinvent itself and found out that, you know, if you took people far, far away from home, and if you got people who, who um, were dark complexion, they could really work in the sun and do all of that. And so, um, and so that's, how, that's how slavery started. But also the dehumanization. When you oppress the people, you have to dehumanize them, right? Mm -hmm. So you had good people, good white Christian people that said, I'm not even sure about the slavery thing, even though you're selling them, you know, the same way that they're selling, like, you know, blenders and used cars, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody can have one. Everyone can have a slave. People question that. Um, was it a moral thing to do? And the architects of the slave business came up with a great marketing strategy. Of course it's cool because you know what? They're not human, right? So it's not a sin. So owning an African slave is just like owning a horse, a cow, or a chicken. So this is where we get into dehumanization right. and institutionalized racism, how people look at people as less than, you know. So we have the reverberations of that. We have that now. So when people are talking about fighting for dignity and injustice, and the names that we call each other, whether we be a brown people or whether we be, um, um, you know, coming from, you know, coming from the border, coming from Latino backgrounds, or black people, or Asian people, or even white immigrants people, um, you struggle against that, but you also are in a situation where racism benefits the state. I keep coming back to this idea that as long as we're divided and conquer as working people, as poor people and everyday people, yeah. it can be business as usual you know, for the people ripping everybody on out. On the white side, did you ever read the Redneck Manifesto? No, I haven't. There's a book, The Redneck Manifesto, which, which kind of says, you know, the last people we can make fun of in this country are rednecks because right. literally the, the, the goal is to make us look, as white people, to make us look stupid right. so that we can be marginalized right. and, and separated. Yeah. Black, I mean, the issues you only hear are black and white. And even in, in comic books, I wrote, a, I wrote a story that ended up getting, I don't know if it was CNN or, or somebody picked up the story that I wrote, and it was when they announced in Ultimate Spider-Man that they were going to make Spider-Man a Blacktino character. Do you right. remember that story? Mm -hmm. I wrote an article about how comics have never been about race. Right. They've always been about class struggle. I mean, you've got... You've got the kingpin, 
You've got poor Peter Parker versus the wealthy Norman Osborn. You've got Lex Luthor versus Superman, the immigrant. And nobody's ever really cared about race that much in the right. movie, I mean, especially when you've got aliens and this and that and running around in comic books. And, um, and in comic books, they, they, they got it fairly clear, but it's something that in the mass media, when it's just an image on a billboard, an image on TV, those separations are still made pretty clear. You know, and and those images are all made by people who, can, who's it's to their advantage to keep those those differences. It, it really does because as long as we are <clears throat> blaming each other, right. There's not enough jobs because, and you know, you name the 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 immigrant group of the day, right? Because all of these brown people, these yellow people, these red people are taking the jobs. We don't, we we're not unifying and going mm -hmm. like, why isn't if we're creating the wealth? Why are we starving? You know, our labor and everything. So, so that kind of thinking and that kind of positioning gets you attacked. And the Panthers were attacked. And so I was arrested at 16 and, um, uh, in a case called the Panther 21 case. Um, Afeni Shakur, Tupac's mom, was part of that case. And Tupac Shakur's mom was part of that case? Mm -hmm, Afeni Shakur. And you knew her? Yeah, she was my mentor. I knew Tupac from the time he was born. I'm, I was uh, one of Tupac's Panther godfathers. I'd known him his whole life. Well, his mother was, um, uh, she's, she's an she is an amazing woman and was one of the leaders of the New York Panther Party and um, tried to send me home at first. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? When you were that 15-year-old Eddie? Yeah, she could, after that same meeting, I yeah. told you, she came. She said, how old are you? And uh, I was 15. And, you know, when you're a kid, you think a year makes and a big difference. And all you were talking about was killing Whitey. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I, put, I put my age up. I'm 17. You lied. Oh, yeah. She said, you look like you're like 14 years old. You need to go home. And I was like, no. She said, go home. I was like, no, I want to be a Panther. She was like, okay, then then uh, I'm going to keep an eye on you. And she did. And um, so so the Panther 21 case, I was arrested um, along with 20 other Panthers. Mm -hmm. And that was the entire leadership of New York. And even though I was the youngest, I had become head of the high school cadres, all the right. young members. And the idea was um, from the district attorney, Frank Hogan, at that time that if I arrest all the leadership, then, you know, you cut off the head, the body, right. the body will die. And we were charged with conspiracy, bomb conspiracy. They said we were going to blow up department stores and the botanical gardens and attack police stations. No, wait, wait a minute. Like, and like, facing 360 how? years. Well, they said we were well, going to... Well, how, how, how did they even put a case together or evidence together that this was going on? Were there millions well, here's, of people within your party that... Here's, here's, here's how the case was put together. Um... You can't just come out and say that somebody is planning... Right. Conspiracy cases, are, uh, you can come out and say... I mean, yeah. Uh, just do it. Well, but how far is it going to go if there's not any hard evidence? Well, you have to have someone there, right? You have to have right. an informer and you have to have, you know, or undercover cops. Um, there was also a person that I met uh, who was um, my section leader, like my lieutenant, and um, took me under his wing and made sure that I learned... The read those books that was given to me and knew the Panther 10-point program and showed up at the breakfast program and taught me hand-to-hand -hand combat and taught me how to uh, use weapons. They luck they're lucky they got some valedictorian instead of some thug. Because you ate even, that stuff up. And even when my grandmother found, you know, uh, you know you're know, you on the go, now I'm really busy, she was yeah. like, do your chores, clean your room, I'll get to it, Grandma. So, you know, my grandmother got tired, went and tried to straighten up my room and was changing the sheets. And under my mattress, between my mattress and box spring, 
where most normal 15-year-old boys probably have a Playboy magazine hidden. Right. I had all of this radical material, all of these Black Panther papers. And if you look up Emery Douglas, the wonderful artist from the Panthers, he used to do the images of the cops as pigs mm -hmm. and black school children having school books in one hand and AK-47s in the other hand. And I came home and she had all of my stuff stacked up mm -hmm. in one pile on the kitchen table. And she had the Bible. She was a very religious woman. And then she had a belt. That was oh. the mafia altar. <laughs> she wow. said, what is this? I said, Grandma, you was in my room. She said, shut up. Don't even talk about it if Those I was your in your choices. room. Those were your choices. She said, Those were the choices. She said, what is this? She says, because I'm telling you right now, I don't know whether to bless you with this belt or to kill you with this Bible. <laughs> but you are not going back there. So I went one more time to say you know, Guys, that I up. couldn't come back. And my grandmother was brainwashed, and she was an Uncle Tom, and she didn't get it. And Afeni Shakur almost took my head off. She said, don't call your grandmother names. Don't ever say that because she is trying to love you and protect you the best way you know how. And you haven't been doing what you were supposed to be doing. So my section leader, a guy named Yewa, came and he explained to her that whatever she decided, you know. It's uh, her house. Would, it's her house. And as a matter of fact, if she told him something he would have to do it, whatever, if she wanted him to do a chore right now because she was an elder. But if you let me, ma'am, I'll keep an eye on him because I know he's not doing as good a school as he could be doing. I know his grades have dropped. I know he's coming in a little bit late. And so she said, okay, you can go back. Well, four weeks later, uh, a SWAT team, um, they were called Tactical Patrol Force, about 30 cops kicked in the door and drugged me off to prison, 4 o'clock in the morning. In your grandma's house? In my grandmother's house. And I was arraigned in... My bail was set at $100,000, which this is 1969, so that is Even like now, a million dollars. Even now, $100,000, yeah. right? Most of us, if we go, we're staying in jail for a while. Yeah. Um, and we found out that this big conspiracy case was because there were two undercover cops who had, you know, collected which intelligence. Had, yeah. uh, one of them had been Malcolm X's bodyguard and then joined the Panthers. It was He was there just uh, a few feet away from Malcolm X when he was assassinated. And the other undercover cop was my mentor, the person who taught me everything, the person who came to my grandmother's house. He was an undercover cop. So I spent so that year said, in I prison. Mean, you must have been even angry at I that was point. just devastated this because guy, I hadn't... You were about to leave. Well, I was about to leave, but also understand that for me, the, joining the Panther Party was as much, probably even more so when I first stepped in the door about the search for manhood, how to be a man. Right. And, like and they were bad. Them. They had a certain swagger, yeah. you see. Yeah. So I had been betrayed by someone who was a father figure, older brother figure. And so I, I came out really hard and really dedicated to the movement, rose in the ranks. I came out on, I stayed in prison for a year and then came out on bail. And, and you, became, how old were you then? 17? 16. 16. And you were in jail the, during your, while you were 16 years old. While I was 16. Was came out just before I turned was 17. Was this a juvenile jail? Well, I was in Rikers Island. I was in a pretty tough prison. And, um, and, so uh, you weren't with kids? I was with kids. I was with teenagers, kids from the ages of 16 to 21. But uh, 21? The but 20 it was year olds are bouncing it you up was, and down the hall. It was gladiator school. Right. And, and on the outside, I may have been this, this, uh, you know, this bad young Black Panther, but in there, I was like this skinny... You know, light-skinned yeah, black kid, right. just, you know, uh, yeah. with the curly afro. And eventually had to fight and, and, and defend myself and prove 
that I could fight and prove that I, and so I, you know, I mean, you at just, first you resisted. thought you were going to die all the time. Yeah, you or know, I came in, injured. I saw the culture of prison, I saw the, um, you know, um, guys strong-arming each other, and I saw, you know, saw, saw people, uh, they call them booty bandits, being, you know, being raped, and. You're a 16-year-old watching this stuff happen? Watching it, but trying to organize, right. trying to tell people. Like, how do I get around this? Not even so much how do I get around it, but how do I organize because... You still got we, that mentality. You still got the mentality that we shouldn't live like this and we shouldn't treat each other like this. And then guys would come and listen to me because I was a pretty good speaker. And it took my cell partner to say, you know, these guys are around listening to you. You think they listen to all this Panther stuff. These guys are trying to figure out how to hem you up in the shower and do something to you. Oh, shit. They want to turn you into a booty bandit. And then finally, and my cell partner told me, he said, here's what you got to do. You got to get the, the leader, the toughest guy, mm -hmm. and you got to get a knife, and you got to just stick this guy in the neck, stick him in the side when he's there bleeding. He said, you might get more time. He said, you might go to the hole while he's there bleeding, or you get a mop ring and you knock him out, and you yell at him, I'm a man. I'm nobody's bitch. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm nobody's booty. I'm a man. And he's and I resisted this. I said, That's, this is just what the system wants us to right. do. They want us to dehumanize us and have us attack one another. Um, Were you afraid he was right just for your own physical survival at any point? It got to that point. But I tell you what triggered you, it was the day that I it. found out. It was the day that I found out that um, my mentor was, a, it was, it was in yeah. fact a cop. And I came back from court that day. And... Um, this guy was in the habit of not calling me by my name. He would just, you know, sweet thing or baby. Young and he one, called yeah. me and he said, hey, baby. I said, I told you that's not my name. He was in the mess hall. This you your, know, this is your cell partner or the This big is guy? the guy. This is the guy lefty. It's the, the I write about this alpha. in the book. The, the alpha male, the guy who the was guys, trying to. Guys, this is all in this book, this Panther is about, Baby. And, so. he said, and he said, and this is where the name comes from. A lot of people think the name is just Panther Baby because I was the youngest. Yeah. And he says, you a baby. He says, you a sweet little Panther Baby. Oh, shit. And I had a food tray that was coming off the child line. And I just swung around and just bashed him as hard as I could with the tray and just, just beat him into semi-consciousness. And they drugged me, took me to the hole. When I came out, I thought I had to go to war with him and his whole crew. Mm -hmm. But he, in fact, got transferred upstate. You didn't know what All the guys in prison, because I had taken down the toughest guy in the right. self block, they now respected me. And I was able to use that respect to try to create, we started literacy classes, martial arts classes, we, we ended that, you know, in our cell block and in the prison, you know, the, the no booty raves, attacks and all no, of that. Yeah, yeah. we, 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 uh, we started some, raising I mean, the political consciousness. People. Yeah. people probably didn't prolong their stay because exactly. they found something else to do. At that point, you started writing? I started writing there, and I came out and wrote for the Panther paper. Because um, the was, is, guys, it was, Jamal, uh, he's got... Um, I, I read the numbers up here. I mean, you, you've had five plays published. What's this? I just looked at Wiki. But I mean, yeah, five plays. plays I've written screenplays. Screenplays. I've had films poetry. produced, uh, documentaries that I directed that that have been on PBS. We looked up, and you were on the damn Oscars a couple of years. I ago. got nominated for an Oscars. That came out. That comes out of my work with young people. Isn't I started a group called Impact Repertory Theater, and we were in a film called August Rush. You guys remember that one with Robin Williams and and. Uh, and was that Carrie Russell? Carrie Russell. Yeah, and uh, and so, what the song in August Rush that got nominated for an Oscar, you helped put it together with young people. With young people. And and I mean, we we literally, I didn't even know you were a part of it. I was like, okay, the August Rush movie that no, not a lot of people went to see got nominated for an Oscar. What is this? But we're watching the Oscars. 
I look up and Jamal is sitting there conducting this orchestra of young kids, and he's waving his arms. He's conducting, and we were jumping up and down our seat uh, off our seats because Laura, when she was still my my, my girlfriend, uh, came to my graduation in '07, right? '06, uh, right there at Columbia, and remembers you, and she's like, "That's Jamal," and. There you were jumping around. Yeah. It was amazing. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about how You've always the been creative organizing arts. young people. I mean, since, since this moment, but, but since this moment that you hit this guy with a tray, came out of solitary, and saw that you now had the ear of people in this Absolutely. cell, that since then, you've been, I mean, those are the first young people yeah. you organized. Yeah, those were the first young people. I came out of prison after that on bail and um, became a field organizer and a spokesman for the Black Panther Party. And I went back to prison for robberies and for hiding out people who were on the run for the FBI. We started a war. We declared war on drugs in Harlem and started shutting the drug dens down by force, going in with guns. Um, well, and you had a, I mean, now you got your gun that you wanted as a 15-year-old. Oh, yeah. How old were you then? Now I'm 17, 18. Jesus. And we're, we're, we're closing <laughs> I mean, these drug dens down. You're younger than the listeners. But here's the thing. Even when you... And, the, and I'm telling you, Harlem in those days, Harlem is such a beautiful place now. Yeah. Um, and, and it's always been spiritually and culturally a beautiful place. But there was, in the 60s and the 70s, it was blighted um, by drugs and by slumlords who walked away from buildings, buildings that were crumbling. Literally, it looked like the set of a World War II movie I, I after saw, the bombing raids. When I, when I was in Philly, when I went to Penn, I saw that going on in North Philly. Yes. Where you would have these... these you know, the, the, I mean, the, the, these were centers of industry back in the World War II, where you would have these giant uh, factories and tenements built up for the for the workers, and then literally, when the war was over, and these things, these widgets or whatever, didn't have to get made anymore, the people who had made their money off of it would literally just move out to the suburbs and let these things fall apart, and people were still living in them, mm -hmm. and they would just fall into slums. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what happened in Harlem. And, 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 and the slumlords would walk away from the buildings, you know, r rather yeah. than pay the taxes and, and make the repairs. Um, so we, we, um, we declared war. But here's the thing. Even if you were robbing a drug dealer and you're taking the drugs and you're flushing them down the toilet or throwing them down the sewer, it's still armed robbery. So I went, went back really? to prison for robbery charges and for hiding people out who were in the room. For this for Robin Hood stuff? But this is even, you know what? This isn't even stealing from the rich, though. This is stealing from criminals. This is criminal. On, like this is these are criminals. Yeah. And, and wait, wait, you wait. What? You can't steal from a drug dealer? No, especially if you're political. If you're part okay. of a, a group like the they're Panthers or the Young Lords, they're, they're, they're looking for a reason. Right. Um, and it was the time that I spent in Leavenworth where a few things happened that set me. Uh, in the direction of, of probably what I was meant to do beyond the Panther years. Um, one was I started writing plays. And in between this, I had managed, while I was out in that stretch that I talked about before, I took some acting classes and I got involved in community theater and off-Broadway theater as a hobby. I wasn't really yeah, yeah. serious, never thought that I would... You know, wind up all. You know. Did you need a release for how? I mean, this stuff sounded so tense. This this Panther stuff sounded so intense and all consuming. Did did you need theater as some form of a release? No, did it was just I really literally did it. You know, it was one of my hobbies. Like an escape? I, I, no? Martial arts was a hobby. I was a black belt. I was teaching, and I had friends that always said, "Oh, you're so funny. You should be an actor." So I walked into an actor class one day, literally. Mm -hmm. You know, I just saw someone. You know, and I walked in, and the teacher gave me a monologue to read, and. Um, I read it, and he said, that was, I'm going to take you in the class, because that was a very wonderful and sensitive reading. 
Now, I found out later that if a German shepherd came in the door and barked the lines, he would say the same thing and let them <laughs> yeah. in the class. But oh, it was fun. Because you're paying for the class? Because you're paying for yeah, the class. Right, right. But it was fun, and I, and I learned a bit. And I just kept going back because it was fun. So, no, the, the, the therapeutic aspect of theater actually didn't happen until I was returned to prison, and I spent that long time, that six years in Leavenworth. For robbery. Um, robbery and hiding people looking yeah. and hiding people out who want to run for the FBI, who which is also a crime. I mean, if 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 you of course if you know if someone comes to your house and they go, oh man, you know, can I, I ca- crash here tonight? And you go, sure. But if they go, oh man, I just robbed a bank, can I crash here tonight? You're supposed to say no, you cannot. Why would you say yes? I mean, were these people who had committed crimes that were that were dovetailed with the movement? What, what tra- with the movement, what you're trying to accomplish? So as as part of the movement, I considered them to be comrades. No. I considered to be, you know, and um, how, how much older than, than Tupac Shakur are you? Oh, I think when 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 were uh, you Tupac, already out of Leavenworth by the time when you Pac were born? was born? I was seventeen, eighteen. Oh, so so when you're running around doing the Robin Hood stuff, he was a baby. He was a baby. Yeah, and you knew him. Oh yeah. Wow. Is it painful for you to, to talk very, about? It's very, really painful. Well, no, yeah, but I can talk about it. But I just want to tell you this. Oh, yeah, of course. This no, funny story about, about the theater. Because I remember. So you I'm, 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 I'm class, sitting in the big yard. You know, I tell you, I I'm sitting in the big yard, and um, uh, two things happen. One, there's a convict. They came. He said, "Young blood." He said, "You can serve this here time, or you can let this here time serve you." And it was great. And, it, you know, it made a lot of sense to me. So I started taking college classes and, and um, earned a degree from KU. It was an amazing program in Leavenworth uh, where professors from University of Kansas would come in. And you'd be fully registered, and they would come. They would work you so hard. I mean, work you hard. We had one English professor named Miss Johnson who was tough. I mean, five foot feet tall. She had guys who were doing life. Right, who were, who were who were like 250 pounds of muscle, scared of her. Why they need a degree if they're she would life? she would she would come in, a sense of who you were. Okay. A sense that you could do it. A sense that while I'm here, some I did I would meant something. I I could mean something. Yeah. And and for those for those guys who had families, right, mm-hmm. who had children or younger brothers, who were saying, look, I, here's what I did. I didn't just. Give I earned up. a degree. I didn't just give up. Right. You know. And I and even from here, I can mention you and be an example. But man, Mrs. Johnson would come in and she would. She wouldn't wouldn't care what what sense you were doing. She would mark up your paper and redline it. One day she came in with the Bible. She had redlined the Bible. Look at these errors, and we're standing like, like oh my God! <laughs> she's ma- she's marking up God. You know what I mean? She <laughs> is t- You'd see a big you know Bo, a big tough convict in the yard. He'd be looking all depressed. You know Bo was doing life. He killed two guys since he'd been in prison. He's looking all depressed. We're like Bo, you all right? No, no, no. What's wrong, Bo? You know your wife break up with you? No, man. What happened, man? Parole board gave you another 10 years? No, man. What is it? Oh, man. Miss Johnson, man. She done gave me a C, man. <laughs> That's going to mess up my whole grade point average. <laughs> Guys took it really seriously, and the professors were dedicated and unafraid because people understand when you really care that that love can be tough love, but you're doing it because you right. love them. People respond to right. that. Um, and then the other thing is up sitting in the yard, and some of the black eyes come and they, and they surround me. And they go, uh, yo, man, uh, your brother Jamal, you know, you was in the Panthers, yeah. You taught karate, yeah. And you did plays. And the way they came in, I was like, does this violate the convict code? Am I in trouble? <laughs> I was like, yeah. They was like, yeah, we thought so. Why don't you do something for Black History Month? You got to do something. And they walked away. So I wrote a play. There was no plays in the library, Black Plays. I wrote a play. And I'm rehearsing with a couple of Bo and a couple of yeah. the other guys. 
And um, into the, my rehearsal come some of the leaders of the Latino gang. Oh, no. Well, what were you thinking? Well, they never leave their section of the yard unless it's to kill somebody. Oh, Everybody has their shit. own section of the yard. It's called the court, their okay. courtyard. You know, All right. the white prisoners, the black prisoners. So when they leave, it's war. So we thought, who are they here to kill? And Tito and Rafael, these guys are lifers. They're watching the rehearsal and real intensely, like they're really upset. And they get madder and madder. And finally, Rafael points at me. He was like, you know, I said, let me speak to you a minute. I was like, oh, damn, it's me. USA, USA, oh, man. <laughs> it's me. See, I knew doing these plays was a bad idea. I knew this, uh, this you know, somehow this, I'm punking myself here. This violates the convict code. And he pulls me to the side, man, and he was like, we've been checking out what you're doing, Holmes. Because there ain't no secrets in the joint, Holmes, not in Leavenworth. And I had to come see for myself. And I've been watching you, Holmes. And I'm going to tell you, that guy you're doing, the guy you're messing with, that effing guy, Yo, I say, he's not feeling his character. <laughs> <laughs> True story. So I said, Raphael, why don't you get yeah, everybody's in? Everybody's a credit. And he was great. <laughs> Wait, you so, cast, I re- so you cast Raphael? I cast him and his friend. So I had to rewrite the play. It became a black and Latino play. Okay. The white guys send their, their, their hit guy. Some KKK. Dude. Some KKK, Aryan <laughs> Brotherhood, six foot three, tattooed, <laughs> hates black people. Hates, right? his fourth hates de- everything. Fourth, fourth degree black belt. They sent him up because they, they, they now, what are the blacks and the Mexicans doing together? Right, right, right. Go check it out. He comes back down. All of his guys surround him, 50 white guys. And they were like, Reb, because his name was Reb for Rebel. Reb, you went up there? He was like, yup. With the blacks and Mexicans? Yup. He said, well, what are they doing, Reb? He said, a play. They said, well, what'd you do about it, Reb? Because Reb could knock somebody out with one right. punch. He said, well, uh, they give me a part. <laughs> so he, so we had the only, we, we formed a multicultural court. In our court, our section of the yard, mm-hmm. black, white, Native American, working on plays, helping each other, you know, with, with, with college working stuff. Working on plays. Working on plays. And I learned a powerful lesson. I learned the power of the creative arts and social change. I knew the power of demonstrations. Right. I knew the power of boycotting. I knew the power of armed resistance. I didn't understand the power of the creative arts for social change. And when we put that play on, and the guys got a 10-minute standing ovation from their peers. And then the very next day, we had, to, you know, we had to convince the warden that it wasn't an escape plot. We built a crude set. It right. was a prison drama. The next day... They thought the warden thought it was an escape plot because it was... Because well, the so warden elaborate. was kind of swayed, but the captain of the guards okay. was completely skeptical. He had to be. <laughs> and we had to tear down the set, the same thing, while the guards were, were watching us. And the next day, we walked by the auditorium, and um, the stage was empty. And the, the door was open, and I drifted in. Uh, this is important because in Leavenworth, there's never an unlocked door. And if you go someplace where you're not supposed to be, you can go to the hole. It's called being out of bounds, right? But I couldn't resist it. I went in there, and I'm looking at it, and I'm hearing, I'm seeing the play again. I'm reliving it. I'm seeing the guys laugh and applaud. And one by one, everybody that was involved in the production, the actors, some of the guys who were behind the scene, some guys decided we needed, it was a musical, and I had a band. I didn't even want a band. The musicians came. <laughs> The spotlight guy came. He missed all of his cues because he made some homemade wine and he was Mm -hmm. drunk and missed every single lighting cue. But we were all there, right? There's about 20 guys just standing there looking at the empty stage. And finally... um, It sounds like I've seen a movie. Yeah, finally a white prisoner says to me, 
great guy, man. His, his name is uh, um, uh, his name is Willie Poe, Subi, and Subi said, um, no, it was another friend of mine named um, named named Sherman, and we were all standing there silently for about five minutes. And he said he said the great line, the greatest line. He said, "Yep, it's really true. You always return to the scene of the crime." <laughs> and then that's when my friend said, "When's the next play?" And you just kept writing. And I said, oh, I haven't written it. Right. He said, well, write it, damn it. And that's how I became a writer at that moment. I mean, prison's got to be the most negative place like, we could possibly think of. Like, it's got to be, you go into prison, you're thinking negative, the people around you are negative. I mean, it's just a place where negative can be get negative. And yet, and you, and yet you see guys, you walk by guy's cell and you see some of the most beautiful paintings. Yeah. Um, from self-taught painters. You know this guy. And you, who... you you hear you hear guys playing the guitar and just doing things. It it, it is it can be when when everything is stripped away, mm -hmm. it's where the human soul has the possibility to triumph. You you know this guy who just made like two hundred million, five hundred million on it by painting the walls over at Facebook. Did you hear this story? Mm -hmm. How he he, yes. he he got paid in stock. I, I was listening to an interview with this guy, right. Korean guy, went to jail in Japan, and ha had to paint with his own urine. But he had to paint. That was his art. He had to do it. He had to do it. And he's sitting there in a, in a Japanese prison where they really hate Koreans. Right. And he's painting. And, right. And all of a sudden I felt okay with the fact that he made $200 million for painting the walls over at Facebook. Right. Because he didn't just paint the walls. I mean, these things are art. Yeah. You know? Um, you're right. I mean, you have to climb up out of it. You have to climb up out of it. And this is true. Listen, this this... This life lesson, if I can share with people, this idea that you can serve the time or you can let the time serve you, because we're all doing time, right? And right. we can all, without realizing, make our life be a prison, you know? Right. I'm locked into this job. I'm locked into this. If you're a poet, you'll be a poet, you know? So mm -hmm. if you're not selling poetry, it's okay. You know, do whatever that day thing is, you know, whether it's teaching or whether it's, you know, you might be baking bagels, you know, but you're a poet. Um, we live in a society where... Fame and the paycheck uh, has to happen to be validated, to be what you are. That's not true. You're an artist because you have to make art. Right. And if that's true, then it's as important as breathing, and no one can deny you that. It's just like asking someone telling you, just hold your breath from now on. You can't breathe mm -hmm. anymore. But, you, but I have to breathe. And then that, that's why I think, and, and also it's, the artist is the, is the most forward thinker. They're the ones to drama and through comedy through all that who can really criticize society it's why more people watch the daily show than cnn yeah you see what i mean because we can get that critique from ones too yeah yeah i mean you read that story about the how, how smart the audience of uh, yeah. uh, the daily show was yeah absolutely uh, one of our listeners nick jimenez uh, i was talking to him uh he's a film student at ut in austin and he said you know what at what point are you a filmmaker at what point do you, are you a filmmaker and i think it's when you start rolling film through the camera. That's I right. I mean, it, it's when you start making the decision to point the camera at something. That's right. And start telling that story. Yeah. And then you say cut when, this, when that segment of the story is done and you're going to roll on to the next shot. That's right. And, and it doesn't really have to do with the fact that you showed up in Variety. Because it doesn't one day, have to do one day with you're going to show up in Variety. One day you're going to show up at the box office. That, one day that's you're exactly right. Things. But that, see, that comes back. The film professor in me wants to bring it back to the idea of craft, right? Because sometimes you I can be, being a teacher. Sometimes you know, being a teacher makes me feel like the worst filmmaker ever. Right. And then sometimes being a film teacher makes me feel like the best filmmaker ever. Right. Does that make sense? Because sometimes I find myself so conflicted. I had a student like last semester say, Hey, Jonathan, is it true that those who can't teach? And I wanted to hit him. You ever wanted to hit any of us? Probably. 
Oh, never. <laughs> uh, he, he, was, he was going to film school on his GI Bill, though, so there was no way I was going to hit this guy. Right, right. Um, but but I, I was like, listen, man, I'm using examples from my own work, you know? And, 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 I, and the second I walked into film school, and we had William Goldman there teaching us. We had people like you there. Oh, I've seen you jumping around on the Oscars. I see. I, I see people like Eric Mendelson, who's probably the only. Isn't he the only person who's ever won Sundance twice? Yeah. And I'm sitting there. We just watched his 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 three back, back rooms the other day. Yeah, three backyards. Yeah, yeah. three backyards. I, I got that for uh, off Netflix for Laura and I to watch. I'm watching these people who are working. You know, you go to film school, you're gonna find people who are working. And again, like your collaborators, you guys run film through a camera. So many of you guys are comic book fans like like just start putting the pen down and writing a comic book start 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 doing start, start drawing a picture you know we've got so many great musicians jimmy jimmy you know like, like he used to be the youngest kid on our forums this kid in new zealand J- uh james uh Harrigy, I, he emailed me a song and i forgot that he'd emailed it to me and I, it just ended up on my itunes and i was driving and i was listening to my ipod it was plugged into the car and all of a sudden, this song starts coming out, this acoustic song with this kid's voice and everything. I had no idea that that song came out of our audience. You guys are so talented, and you guys are, are drawn to this show because we've got storytellers on here. And I just want to remind you guys that listening to the storytellers is only half of the storytelling. Does that make sense? Like, you guys are an invaluable resource. and it, it, But it's up to you guys to either do the, serve the time... Or, ha- or what is it again? <laughs> it's really or important. let the time serve you. Or let the time serve you. Right. Because otherwise you, do, you would have just withered in jail, wouldn't that, you? That's exactly right. And then you started writing screenplays you got out of there. I did. I, well, uh, it, for, I came out with plays because I had done a, a lot of plays when I was there. And, um, and then the same thing, just kind of drifted into a screenwriting class and um, met some people in the theater who were also doing films and just started... Uh, hanging out on film sets. I was lucky enough to know some people who were uh, producers and assistant directors of some bigger independent films that was happening. This is the 70s? No, this is now, now we're talking late 80s, 90s. So you spent a lot of the 70s in jail? Uh, A lot of the, yes. A lot, well, uh, a lot of the... How long did you spend in jail total? A total of nine and a half years. Jesus. What was your longest stretch? The longest stretch was that uh, transformative stretch, which was Leavenworth. That was six years. Um, and it would just sit. Sometimes I would just go on a film set and just sit and then just help out and just no pay. But and you're in New York? And here in New York. So, and so late 80s, you've got Jim Jarmusch, you've got Spike Lee, you've got this. Yeah, NYU I got to be crowd. on a, a couple of Spike set and Hughes Brothers set and just, was, just sit and watch how people would work. Yeah. And uh, I had friends who were like assistant directors that would get me close to the camera. And then when I deconstructed the process from being there, this is the other valuable thing that happened. You know, um, in Columbia, of course, um, you all do it all the time. Everybody works in everybody's productions. Right. You don't have to. You don't just show up just when you're directing. Right. You show up, you do sound, you cater, you do all of that. It's so important. But it's, high, it's so important to learn the, not just the culture of it, but how all the moving parts of the mm-hmm. film. Um, and then from there, um, wrote a couple of scripts, um, educational films, there was a, a company called AIDS Films that was dedicated to making films about the AIDS epidemics, but dramas that would really cat, catch people instead of just PSA kind of films. Right. And wrote a couple of those and then finally talked my way into directing one of those because huh. they would, you know, I became the go-to writer. It was like 93, 94. Yeah. 
and um, and then uh, uh, and a couple of those films got some attention and won some awards. And then I wrote a script about the Panthers, not about my life, but about the Panthers, and that got me into. And I applied to the Sundance Directing Lab, and that got me into the Directing Lab um, in '92, um, and that's how my uh, "quote unquote" Hollywood career kind of started. And by this time, you're in your 30s. By I'm in my, I'm in my 30s, yeah. And like that's the thing with uh, if if you had like a lot of these kids, they come out of undergrad. And I remember I came out of undergrad, and Rachel Vine and I used to play this game. Mm-hmm. When we were we were shooting the eight to twelve, our first year project, we were shooting it at Matt McHugh's, and we played this game. In five years, where are we going to be? Yeah. In ten years, where are we going to be? And even that seemed dangerous to play. That's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. I mean, luckily, three years after that, we were. She was producing a music video for me. You know, a couple of years after that, she produced a commercial that I went to New York to shoot for her. Um, but if if if, not, if some of those things hadn't fallen into place, and I find I, I sit in lean months that I get so depressed. I mean, if you put those limits on yourself, I mean, could you imagine if you'd put your limits on yourself when you were in, in a prison? Right. Exactly. And here you are in your mid thirties, and you are at the Sundance Labs, and uh, uh, James uh, Ponsold, who just had another movie in Sundance. Oh yeah. He went to the Sundance Labs. Yeah. That's right. You know? We get all we get all conspiracy because we're like, oh, James just shot that movie in October. How the hell did he make the Sundance deadline? <laughs> oh, it's because he knows the Sundance people because he went to the Sundance Lab. Right, right. And uh, Robbie Pickering, you guys remember a couple years ago, like two, three years ago, we had Robbie Pickering on the show uh, trying to raise money for uh, his, his movie Natural Selection. You guys remember that. And he went through the same uh, film lab and screenwriting, directing lab and screenwriting program over here at the uh, uh, Los Angeles Independent film festival and and then he ended up making that movie national selection and it it swept uh, south by southwest and i just saw in deadline hollywood yesterday he's gonna direct like a sci-fi movie he's gonna direct this pretty big movie that is getting put together by what the producer of the new of the spider-man movies and this uh this movie is like a zombie a vampire and a human team together to fight an alien invasion and robbie pickering who we had on the show who we helped Get the word out about his movie is putting that movie together. That's fantastic. And we're going to have Robbie back on the show. Yeah. Especially when when he, natural uh, when uh, natural selection comes out on video. But but I mean, guys, honestly, if you don't sing, no one's going to hear you. And really true. And for me, you guys know I'm doing this. I love talking to you guys. I love hearing from you guys. I love hearing your stories. And for me, it is. I mean, you guys know I'm straight edge. I've never had, a, I've never done drugs, never smoked, drank nothing. But sitting in that theater, and I remember it was my thesis, Gay by Dawn from Columbia, sitting in that theater. And it, I mean, the faculty was like, "What the hell is this movie?" Some of the faculty was, "Yeah," but sitting in that theater and listening to an audience respond, it was the only thing I could think is akin to the rush you get. Yeah. I mean, it, there's nothing like it. And that's when you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't care that a month, I mean, I had just spent a year in Los Angeles riding around a girl's bike in a lumberyard to try and make money. I didn't care that the next two years of my life, uh, sometime, by this point, you guys knew me. When we started doing uh, Geek Drum in 06, you know, one weekend I'm talking to Kevin Smith, the next day I'm, I'm back to delivering packages in Los Angeles. You know, I mean, you go through these stretches, but if you give up or you don't even start, 
you might as well be one of those inmates who didn't take the courses. Exactly right. That's insane. Yeah. Uh, Jamal, like, listen, like, is your is, is Panther Baby as well? I mean, it's got to be as well written as, as what you're, we're hearing. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean it's, it's, been, it's been getting some good reviews. You can Let me see some of these. Yeah. Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Essence Magazine. I mean, but guys, again, like this isn't like I think I think what I, I really want you guys to know is you don't have to buy this book. You know what I mean? Like this isn't just a black book. That's that exactly sense? right. No, Does that it's, drive you nuts? Like the delineation that forms. When no, you, you know what's been amazing has been it's or, or it's been the, I've been hearing from from um, from 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 people yeah. uh, of all colors and all generations. And the great thing is to hear from a parent that that read the book um, and said I gave it to my teenager to read, or a teenager that read the book mm -hmm. and said I gave it to my parents to read, because it is written. The narrative is this fifteen-year-old black kid trying to find. Latino, by the way, because uh, because my parents are Cuban. I never yes. knew my dad, and didn't find out till later that he actually fought uh, alongside of Che, che wow. Guevara and, and Fidel wow. Castro. So it's another narrative point of the book. And then my relationship with Tupac and the conversations I had with Tupac before before he died. That's and in his book. That's in that book. Yeah. Your it's conversation with Tupac. My conversations with Tupac and and him talking about forty about that night in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I looked up, another case of me looking up, just watching my ESPN. And I, I love those forty for forties, and uh, and there's Jamal on the damn TV talking mm -hmm. about Tupac and Mike Tyson. That's right. And I mean, that's got to be tough. I mean, you saw this person grow up. You saw this person turn into a sensation. Absolutely. Do you, do you and we would have long conversations about art and about life and politics. First of all, he was brilliant. Right. And. <clears throat> Afeni would make Tupac, when Tupac would do something wrong, he had to write essays. He, he had to read the New York Times every day coming up. A lot of people don't know that about Tupac, how brilliant and political he was. He went to Baltimore School of the Arts, so he, he, he studied Shakespeare, he studied ballet, he studied all that. He loved acting. Uh, he wanted to move more toward acting. He wanted to move away from thug life. Uh, we had a conversation like this when he was in prison. And he tells this great story about uh, being in the hospital prison ward, and when they bring him onto the ward, the guys recognize him. And one of the young thugs come up to him and go, Tupac, you're my hero, you're my hero. And he goes, why am I your hero? And he goes, oh, come on, Tupac, come on. You've been making all the money. you got all the girls. You shot at the police. He said, time out. That's why I'm your hero. I don't need to be anybody's hero. And that's when he told me, uh, Uncle Jamal, at that, at that point I realized thug life is dead. Right. Right? And um, um, When you see it now, does it just drive you nuts? Um, it do does. Think? What do you think? Well, you know, Tupac had worked on this thing called the Code of Thug Life, okay. which talked about no drive-bys and no hustling in the hood and love and respect and was really working on building these gang truces. And, and he was about to leave Death Row Records. Um, he had really, uh, he, had, he had already started to call a truce and um, make, make a record with East Coast and West Coast artists that he was calling his One Nation project. Mm -hmm. And if you look at those interviews a week or two before he died, he was saying, that East Coast, West Coast stuff is dead. Y'all are keeping it alive, meaning the media. Right, right, right. So had he lived, what would have happened in terms of the street cred and the following that he had, in terms of moving people away from thinking that this is the path to manhood, that being a thug and just doing that. You know, it's really sad because... You have, you have the kids in the suburbs who actually buy the who buy the hip hop, who right. buy the gangster rap, and you have the kids in the hood who we're can't afford to buy it, but they live it. Consider it every day, right? Yeah, they consider I mean, it every we're day. We're recording this at USC, where you go a couple blocks in that direction, 
you, I mean, this is the neighborhood with the riots. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that went all the way up to Koreatown on the airstrip yeah. of 10. And these people are living it, Yeah, right? absolutely living it. So, um, I, so it's I, not glamorous to them. No, no, so it's not glamorous. It's, it's an everyday struggle. Um, you know, it, it, it really is going to take on-the-ground community organizing. It's really going to take the power of love. That If you ask anybody who was in the Black Panther Party what motivated us the most, it's interesting how similar that answer is to, um, um, to the civil rights movement, to the church, to all of that. They will tell you we were taught to have an undying love for the people right. and for the community, and that it's about service. But we've got to do something about these numbers. And by these numbers, I mean... Um, there are statistics across the country that show that um, a young black man graduating from high school, first of all, it's a one in four chance that he'll graduate, and then it's a one in four chance that he'll go to college. But it's almost guaranteed that he could wind up in prison because that number is one in three right. in terms of that. So we're building more and more prisons, and we're, letting, we're closing schools. And we're cutting the for them. And the profit off the prison justice. is the military-industrial complex. Wrecking. So it's really, we have, we have to question. We have more people in jail than any other country in the, on the globe. More, we used to be number three. When I was in prison, right. we were number three. Behind so Soviet, were, I mean, you guys were pretty pumped about be, getting number one. Beside, <laughs> be, yeah, right. Beside, beside the Soviet Union, right, uh, and, and, the and, and, yeah. and South Africa. Okay, um, United States was number three. Now we are unquestionably number one. Right. You know, um, it's a really sad statement to the country that's supposed to be the leader of the free world. Yeah, nothing free about it. Yeah. You now, guys. Um, if you guys think that we're getting off subject now, Jamal, well, real quick, before we get off of it, this direction that Tupac was moving into, do you think that he saw, I mean, he knew you personally for so long in his life, and he was witness to what had, had, had happened with you and Levensworth. I mean, in a way, there's a parallel. He saw you take the negatives and turn them into a positives, and that was something that he was aspiring to do in those final years, final weeks of... Final yeah, weeks of absolutely. Life. And you an inspiration to him? I think or one of... I think... I, I, one of yeah. yeah, I think one of them... I think his mother remained the biggest inspiration yeah. in his life. Um, she's just a wonderful, wonderful person, strong, creative. Um, and Tupac was growing up. He was 25 years old. Yeah. And he had this... He, he, he lived a life where, at a certain point... They moved from city to city because the FBI harassed his mother for being a Panther and because of who his stepfather was, and then really intense poverty, and then prison, and then this uh, unbelievable um, fame mm -hmm. um, and money. And he had settled into a lot of that and started to find balance. You know, and if we think about what the 20s mean for most people in their life, it is you experiment, you go up yeah. and down, and then, you know, you start to get to your mid to late 20s, your 30s, and you start to find that balance. You start to understand, this is my path, and boy, why did I ever do that? But it's just part of it. Right. And I think, I think that he, had, he was starting to find his balance, and his life ended way, way too soon. That's a shame. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think everybody, whether you're <clears throat> white, black, yellow, red, purple, you guys, I mean, that, I mean l losing a leader... You know, and, and I, I think, or, or I mean, even a potential leader. I mean, you guys could have hated his music, but you, the, the potential is what we're talking about. Right. Not the product. That's right. I mean? um, so, parents were the biggest influence. The reason I want to segue 
and use that as a segue is because Jamal actually has a geek son. <laughs> you have a huge geek son, and I love it. Yes. Jamal Jr. worked at a GameStop. Worked at a GameStop. It's all about the video games. He's, he's all about the video games. Uh, and he's a film geek, too. You know, he's, I mean, he's, he's a fourth a, he, year at Columbia. At, he's a fourth year at Columbia and a, and, a, and, a, and a good, really good writer and a director. And, um, but he's uh, used his experiences at GameStop and feeling kind of, uh, and felt like he, this, was supposed to, this was supposed to be my dream job, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you grow oh, up a yeah. geek, you work in a video store, and then you find out you're a clerk, you're a cog in the machine. Yeah. How many of you guys worked at GameStop? Like, you guys listening thought that GameStop was going to be the coolest job. You know, I, I had a student, literally a student when I was teaching at Art Institute, say, are you Jonathan from Geekscape? And he recognized me because uh, he was a geek, he worked at GameStop, and he listened to Geekscape. And, and I was like, okay, this is a little awkward, my, my, my teaching and my podcasting getting in the, in the mix. But uh, he was telling me all about like GameStop and how it is a cog in the machine and how they have certain structured tactics that they use to get like they have a, a, the female employee aka quote unquote the meat right getting people into the store she's like the cute girl yeah i guess the game and then there's somebody who i don't know there was a whole manifesto that came out online from a from a, a, a jaded employee and your son was into it he was it into ruin, it but it didn't ruin ge- uh, video games for him no it didn't ruin video games he still loves zombies he still loves zombies he still loves that and, and, and he created a zombie web series that just went live called working class nightmare yeah. uh and that's the recurring thing. When, when the zombies see someone, they go, me, you know, because yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. The, the, the zombies have just a, uh, all of the zombies kind of have a piece of what they were doing when they got infected. Right. Uh, and this girl works at a coffee shop. Yeah, the girl works in a coffee shop, the hero, and um, she makes folk music, bad folk music. <laughs> I wasn't going to judge. <laughs> In, in, in case that was your uh, follow up to August Rush, I wasn't right. going to judge. That, no, but deliberately. <laughs> right, right. But, right. but she's so upbeat funny. about it. And there is a possible Jamal cameo if you guys see it. There's a possible Jamal cameo, and uh, but written directed uh, by Jay Junior. And for uh, for anyone who's had any of those kind of jobs, there's a, some other some other people who work in a goth horror shop, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's another guy who's an auto mechanic, a black guy who's the worst mechanic in the world. He can't yeah. fix anything, you know. And um, the trailer looked hilarious. Like I, I watched the first episode, then I watched the trailer. Yeah. And it looks hilarious, and it really is. Uh, it's got like a Breakfast Club thing going on. It really like, does. A modern day Breakfast Club. Modern day Breakfast you know? Club are these people. These. Uh, these people who are trying to escape, not just from the zombies, but from the nightmare of the working class. <laughs> How much? I mean, so it's got a little bit of politics in there. It's got a little politics in there. Yeah, and it's really. Uh, You're such a proud really, father. I'm really yeah. proud. Yeah, I'm yeah. really proud that 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 uh, that that in exploring the things that he loves mm-hmm. and in his geekishness, <laughs> you know. Did you love it? Yeah, there's that sense. There's that sense of social he's justice. A writer. In it. I mean, he's not just an artist, but he's starting to put it together. I mean, really putting it this together. This is a guy's. This honestly isn't a bad web series. We're going to put him, promote it on Geekscape. And again, it's called Working Class Nightmare. If you guys put that into YouTube, I think isn't it um, YouTube.com/slash? I want to say the the URL to the channel. But honestly, guys, if you guys just say put in Working Class Nightmare into YouTube, you guys will find it. There's one episode in the trailer up as of the posting of this episode, but. Um, I thought it was good. It was entertaining. Yeah. In, in a lot of web series, you know, like people get, oh, I just need a 5D. I just need to run around. I just need to shoot this. But like from the first shot, when it's not just a, a, an establishing shot, but that first shot is kind of a tight on the girl carrying the poster. Yeah. 
You know, you're like, okay, well, this guy's making decisions. You know what I mean? Which yeah, absolutely. Nuts when you cut to something and it's like a wide, or I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it starts to kind of go towards Garfield. But you know what I mean? Like, like when it's like, I don't know. It just seems like a committee. But I mean, you see Jamal making some choices, right? And absolutely. you see, you actually see him starting to put the filmmaking together. You see the you hand, know? yeah. You see the hand of. Of Eric Middleson. He had Eric Middleson as a teacher and Tom Kellen. I would pay so much to sit in Eric's class again. Yeah. Just for an hour. Yeah, I remember the moment when Eric said, I was so lost. Jamal, uh, I mean, everything I shot just depressed the hell out of me. Everything I showed up in in class was just so depressing. And, you know, it didn't matter if I spent five minutes on it, if I spent five hours on it. It, 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 I didn't like it. And... And Eric tasked me with, with making a simple, just pick a simple scene of two people talking. So I, I, I picked the scene from uh, True Romance where Harvey, uh, uh, Dennis Hopper is talking to Christopher Walken about the eggplant and this and that. And I got two of my fellow students to act in it. And I just chilled out. I just put the camera on them and I just had them run through the beats. And Eric Mendelssohn, I remember the, literally the moment I said, I can do this. And... He just looked at the scene and he said, "Congratulations, that's directing. You didn't. You, you, you're. I did. My insecurities didn't push, didn't interrupt the story, didn't interrupt the 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 the, the telling of it. So, you know what I mean? Like like I think I think people go rush into film school. They rush into their first films, their first stories, and and sometimes that's why you know like early Shakespeare is so bloody." Early Tarantino is so bloody. It's still kind of bloody, but, you know, the early, early crafts, you, you just want to come out and just rage and come out with a fist so fast. And you do that stylistically with a camera, and you end up making things that nobody's seen before, but for a reason. They don't look very good, right? Oh, and film school is a great way to just say, hey, Jonathan, like, like put on the brakes, and the answers aren't in the outward push. Right. It's in the inward push. Right, exactly. You know, and, and yeah, I mean, sometimes you do need those years of solitary confinement, and you do need those years of struggle to spend a lot of time by yourself and be like, all right, what's the story I want to tell? Yeah, you, you know, know, what's the story as I've got? Exactly. You know, and at the very least, if people can't afford film school, either right. because they can't uh, afford the money or Go to, to take prison. the time, <laughs> come to Leavenworth. <laughs> Leavenworth. I learned so much about the arts in Leavenworth. Get the it was amazing. and these guys. The, the Aryan nation. There you go. You had to see us in the yard when I would bring out some pages, right? And he goes like, I, I'm supposed to say these lines here, Jamal. What's my motivation here? I don't understand what's going on here with the character. I just... But, but no, I watch... What you're say, you yeah. know, with... The, with, with um, I'm amazed at people who want to make television who don't watch TV. Mm-hmm. Or people who say they want to make music and they don't listen to all kinds of right. music. I mean, all kinds of music. This is the, I want to come back to Tupac for a second. Tupac could tell you about jazz. He could tell you about classical. He could tell you about folk music. One of his fav- favorite musicians was like Don McLean. He would, he would in those days, it was vinyl, right? Yeah. He would wear vinyl out. I can just listen imagine to Tupac stuff. listening to Bye Bye American Pie. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, but that's what you're telling me. But that's what, that's what he did. Vincent. And then those influence. yeah. And Vincent Van Gogh was his favorite yeah. artist. So he studied that. He tried to, <clears throat> and, and was a real student of the art. So I would say at the very least, watch films again and again. Listen to the director's commentaries. Read about it. You know, if if that's what you are, if you're a filmmaker, whatever, if you're a musician, the same thing. You know, listen to all kinds of music. And then it's easy with the Internet 
to read interviews and conversations and commentaries and essays of other stuff so that you become a student of the craft because you do need, you need the passion. Nothing will get made if you don't make it, but it's not good just because you made it. Right. So there's the artist struggle that you talk about, yeah. that I talk about, that Tupac would talk about, of working so that it was finally good, mm -hmm. so that you had some craft. Um, you guys remember a story I wrote for the site uh, a year ago, around November 2010. Uh, it was, it was. I remember in the day after the day after Thanksgiving, sitting in the Seattle airport and finding out that my films teacher from undergrad had died. You guys remember? Uh, you know, kidney failure. He was an older guy, but he was the reason that he's the person who got me excited in film. I mean, I took every class that he had in, in, at Penn's fledgling film program and. I wouldn't have gone to film school without him getting me interested in film. Uh, recently, literally last week, guys, uh, I was talking to his... Uh, well, I wrote that piece for Geekscape, you know, just saying, like, you know, this is what this guy meant to me, and, and you guys wouldn't have a website, and we wouldn't have something about storytelling if it wasn't for this man. And, uh, and a lot of you guys really enjoyed that piece. And his wife read it and just uh, lost it. She, she loved it. And, uh, and, and I was very touched by that. Last week... She sent me his notes. She sent me his notes, Jamal. And I'm sitting there on the floor of my office, and I've got a box. And I'm like, what could she have possibly mailed me? They were his film school notes. Oh, my goodness. His lectures, his books on Robert Flaherty making Nanook of the North, his books on Eisenstein, his books on Michael Apted putting together 7-Up. You know, the, the, the series. I mean, we're si I'm sitting here... On the floor, just like, sh like, sh like, thank God Laura was at home. She'd be like, man, I married a wuss. But I wow. was, I was, it was, I mean, of all the students that this guy has affected, she yeah. mails me his notes. And I, I mean, there's not, nothing like it. I'm shaking thinking about it. But they're in my office, and I look at them, and I don't even know how to start processing through it. But guys, this is, a, this is, this is not a, a, an art done in isolation. You know, the answer's... Are, are things that need to be worked out, but when you, when you do this personal paleontology and you and you find the fires inside of you, communicate them with people. You know what I mean? Uh, pu push and pull, and 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 collaborate and find the people who who think like-mindedly. You know, I mean, Jamal is telling us a story, and it's in this book, Panther Baby, about how he used this to literally get him through six years in Leavenworth, right? To go from someone, and it, it, it says actually in one of these reviews, I love this, I love this, uh, the Kirkus Reviews calls it an inspiring, unapologetic account of his transformation from armed revolutionary to revolutionary artist. I mean, this is all of us, guys. And, and I think that's what we're saying, and I, and I know we've said it before. But um, Jamal, thanks for sitting there with me, man. Literally, oh, this is so this, great. I think this is the longest Geekscape, but I love doing this. Yeah, this we is fantastic. I think I think Kevin Smith was two hours. Oh wow! Back on Geek Drone, but I love doing this stuff, and I love talking to storytellers. And literally, guys, if you guys want more from Jamal, please. Um, and I have a website. Oh yeah, let's do the. You're on well, Twitter now. Yeah, I know. Twitter up. At uh, Twitter is uh, at JJ Panther Baby, mm -hmm. and um, the the website is JamalJoseph.com, mm -hmm. and there's a trailer. There's a little video trailer of. Um, where we did a reenactment of my first day in the Panther office. And the book you can find on Amazon and barnesandnobles.com. And, um, 
Yeah. You get it on your Kindle. And you get it on your Kindle. And your iPads. I know you guys were running around with all those digital tools. You against that stuff? Yeah. yeah you're just for reading. So like, you I'm don't just care for reading, yeah. Just for like Kindle. All right. So guys, uh, that's the book, Panther Baby. Okay? Jamal Joseph, follow him on Twitter, JJ Panther Baby. Uh, I'm Jonathan London on Twitter, at Jonathan London. And, of course, you guys can find Geekscape at geekscape.net. We literally have a new site coming in two, in two weeks. Um, so be excited for that. And then um, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We're going to South by Southwest. We're coming right back. We're getting a booth at WonderCon, and we're doing the WonderCon thing. So there's going to be a lot of video content for those of you guys who missed the video. You guys will be getting it. Uh, so just hang with us and watch, listen to us the next episode. All right, thanks, Jamal, for coming on. Thank you. Peace. And of course, I'm not going to stop without saying this. YouTube, look for it. Working Class Nightmare. That's Jamal Jr.'s web series. We're going to be pimping it on the show, too, and on the site. Bye, guys. <laughs>